This morning we're going to be working out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. But let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Father, right now, in your precious name, we ask you to speak to us, Lord. We ask you to encourage our hearts, Lord. As we look at this beautiful topic, the, the day of the Lord, we've already seen the rapture of the church. We've seen the dead in Christ rise first. And then Paul said, we who remain went up to meet the Lord in the air with them. And so, Father, encourage us now. As the covenant is going to be made with uh, a man called Antichrist. And it's going to be for a one-week period, which we understand is seven years. And we know, Lord, that this man's going to come with answers for the whole world. And we know the time of the tribulation will be at hand. And so, Father, encourage us as we study your word now. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and we all agree by saying amen. If you have a Bible this morning, turn with me to First Thessalonians chapter uh, 5. And let's go to verse 1. But just kind of leave a marker there. I want you to go back up to chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. And that's where we left off last week. Because as we spoke about the translation of the church last week. We spoke about the rapture of the church. We encouraged our hearts as we looked at the word caught up, the word harpazo, the great snatching away, the removal of the church before the seven years of tribulation will take place. And then these seven years of tribulation uh, will cover Revelation chapter 6 through Revelation chapter 18. We're going to see 21 judgments. And so, Paul comes into this next section. But just to tie it up, I'm going to go quickly. Uh, look at verse 4, 13, that is, of last week in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul begins here, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or who have fallen asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. And so we declared last week the Christians do not die like the heathens die. The true church, the true body of Christ, when they pass away, they used to use this Greek term. They sleep in Christ. They sleep in Jesus. Others have no hope. And so Paul continued. Look at verse 14. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with those or with Jesus, those who have fallen asleep in him. Now we understand if Jesus rose again, there are going to be those in the church that have died. And they're also going to rise. And so we gave this reference last week, and it just blew us away. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 52, Jesus' resurrection. And the Bible says there in Jerusalem that the graves were open, And that many had died in Christ or had died in God. And now they rose from the dead. The graves were open. Remember, there's a 40-day post-resurrection. And so can you imagine for 40 days there in Jerusalem, those that had died had now risen and were walking the streets of Jerusalem. And the Lord would take them home with him. And so Paul declares that. But look at verse 15. According to the Lord's own words, we tell you that we, and now he speaks to the body of Christ, who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. He goes back to that word, fallen asleep. 
Those who died prior to Jesus, death, resurrection, and ascension, we who are alive on the earth at the time, we're not going to precede those that had gone before them. In other words, we'll go right after them. It's a beautiful concept when you look at it. Notice now verse 16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with a trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. We know that one day soon, Jesus will return at this shout of the trumpet call. But those that are asleep in Christ, those that have passed away, they're going to go first. But then the church will be harpassoed. And he clarifies that as we read verse 17. After that, and here's that, we again. Our, we who are still alive, our left will be caught up uh, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Now we spoke about the word rapture last week. There are those that don't like the terminology of the word rapture. It says it's not in scripture. We see that the word Trinity is not in scripture. We see that the word Bible is not in scripture. And yet those are not denied. And so the word rapture, we understand, uh, is taken from this word caught up. It's the word harpazo. In the Greek, and it means to be uh, drawn, uh, you know, snatched away uh, violently to be taken out. But we draw this word harpazo. Uh, in our English word, we come up with the word rapture because in the Latin Vulgate, the word was raptus. And raptus, where we coined the word rapture, uh, the great snatching away. And so Paul says the dead in Christ first, and then those that remain. Paul believed that he was part of that, the church at Thessalonica. And here we are 1950 plus years later, and we're still anticipating and waiting for the rapture of the church. We who are still alive and are left will be caught up, harpazled, raptured uh, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Notice that the Lord is in the air. He has not come down bodily yet. That's at the end of the seven years of tribulation. And I like this verse, seven, the bottom of verse 17. And so will we be with the Lord forever. And then he concludes in verse 18, and we drew from that last week. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. The word to encourage, comfort one another with these words, that the Lord is coming soon. That the history of mankind will be coming through this seven years of tribulation. Paul was encouraged with the church at Thessalonica. Peter was encouraged. James and John, they were encouraged. You think about the church at Thessalonica. They were ready to see the Lord in their time. And here we are, 1900 plus or at least 1950 uh, years plus later, and the Lord still has not returned. But the anticipation, church. And so now Paul describes the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then the rapture of the church. And now he speaks about, from verses, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, this day of the Lord. This day of the Lord. I want to draw from uh, Dr. Harry Ironside. He speaks about this day of the Lord so beautifully. A scholar, uh, he's passed away now, about 50 years in ministry, just a beautiful time. He was the tremendous preacher there at uh, Moody Memorial Church in Chicago. But listen to what he says. He clarifies it so beautifully. 
He begins here, after upholding the truth concerning the rapture, which will take place when our blessed Lord rises from the Father's throne, descends in the air, and gives the awakening shout at the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we, and there's that position again, then we which are alive and remain will be changed, metamorphosis, and when we will be caught up together to meet him in the air, the apostle turns to consider, Ironside says, the day of the Lord. Following the catching away of the saints, there will come upon this world the darkest period it has ever known. That which is designated in many places in the Old Testament as the day of the Lord. Interesting. Now, we understand in Jeremiah uh, chapter 30, verse 7, it is called Jacob's trouble. Or the time of trouble, this great tribulation, as it is called both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so we're going to see this morning that Paul says it should not catch us by surprise. Now before we go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, I want you to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 30. But if you're taking notes, the day of the Lord is mentioned in the Old Testament uh, many times, and I'm just going to give you twice here, Isaiah chapter 65, verses 17 through 19. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 22. Here in 1 Thessalonians in the New Testament, chapter 5, and then in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. But I love this passage in the Old Testament in Jeremiah chapter 30. Now, he's going to speak in verse 7 about Jacob's trouble. So let me just set this up for you. Back in Genesis chapter 32, we know that Jacob wrestles with the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord says, listen, I got to get going now. Let me go. I'm paraphrasing this. And he says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And the Bible says that the angel of the Lord touched Jacob's heart the hollow of his thigh, and he literally walked with a limp the rest of his life. And so then we come to Genesis chapter 35, verse 10, and God changes Jacob's name. You're no longer going to be called Jacob, which is heel catcher or supplanter, but now you're going to be called Israel, governed by God. Now, I believe that the seven years of tribulation are for the world. But I believe it's especially for the nation of Israel because God wants to woo them back unto himself. Now, please, there are those that teach that God is finished with Israel. Not so. When you come to Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, we understand that uh, they had rejected the Messiah. But Paul writes so beautifully that God is going to restore them. He is not finished with the nation of Israel. But the seven years of tribulation is going to hit hard on the Jewish nation and the Gentiles that will be in the seven years of tribulation. But let's begin here in Jeremiah chapter 30. Look at verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Write in a book all the words I have spoken to you. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will bring my people Israel 
and Judah back from captivity and to restore them to the land. I give their forefathers to possess, saith the Lord. Now we understand according to 70 AD, Jesus had predicted that the Jews would be scattered one more time. We know that the temple was leveled. We, we know that the, the stones of the temple were taken down because they went after the goal. They were scattered. They did not start to return to Israel until the Zionist movement, which was the 1900s. And we know that Israel began to come back like a magnet. And we know that that magnet is the Holy Spirit. They began to trickle back uh, into the nation of Israel. And as the Zionist movement continued, many Jews had finally come. And finally, the battle that was won. On May 14, 1948, Israel has become a nation. It was unheard of, church. May 14, 2008, they just celebrated uh, 60 years. And so the promise through Jeremiah. Now look at verse 4. These are the words of the Lord spoken concerning Israel and Judah. This is what the Lord says. Uh, the cries of fear are heard. Terror, not peace. Ask and see. Uh, can a man bear children? Then why do I see every strong man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor, every face turned deadly and pale? Now, this is because of the turmoil during the time of the seven years of tribulation. And we're going to study as we continue that the time of the tribulation is like a, a woman in travail and pregnancy, and eventually she will have that child. And I believe strongly, and scholars believe, that right now, the birth pangs have already started. And so notice now this beautiful verse 7. Alas, in the Hebrew it's a woe, for that day is great, so that none is like it. And it is the time, and here's the beautiful translation, of Jacob's trouble. In the Hebrew the word trouble is tribulation, but he shall be saved out of it. God is not finished with the nation of Israel. There will always be a remnant of the Jews. There will be those that will survive the seven years of tribulation. We understand and we know many of the Jews will be hid there in Petra, the rock city, in Jordan. God is going to sustain them. He's not finished with them. Again, do your homework in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. The rejection of Israel, of Messiah, and then Israel's restoration. And what's so beautiful there, in Romans chapter 11, it says that we, uh, the Gentiles that are born again of the Holy Spirit, become the grafted-in branch. Uh, we're part of Israel. And some declare us to be a spiritual Israel. But that's, that's okay. It doesn't bother me. But God is not finished with the nation of Israel. He loves the Jews. And he's going to bring them to saving grace. But many will perish in the seven years of tribulation. And so now Jacob has set it up for us, or Jeremiah, concerning Jacob's trouble. And let's go to our text now. First Thessalonians chapter 5. And we begin this day of the Lord, the seven years of tribulation. And it can't come into being until a covenant is made by this which we call Antichrist. But notice verse 1 now. And Paul begins to describe, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. I love what Paul's doing here through the power of the Holy Spirit. He says about the times and the dates, we do not need to write to you. No man knows the time. No man knows the year. 
No man knows the hour, and yet there has been date setters, even here in 53-54 A.D. As many, uh, the church of Thessalonica believed that the rapture had already taken place. And here we are 2,000 years later. Let me give you a few verses you can take the notes down. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 42, listen to what Jesus says. Watch therefore, for you know not what your Lord does come. And so our position is to watch, but not to set a time or a date. In Matthew 25, verse 13, the words of Jesus again. For you know neither the day nor the hour when the Son of Man, speaking of Jesus Christ, he cometh. We anticipate we're going to see signs of the times, but be careful with date setters. I was amazed. I took some statistics, and it just blessed me. I didn't realize there were so many. It begins here in 52, 53 A.D. Uh, the church of Thessalonica believed the rapture had already taken place. 500 A.D., Roman priest by the name, uh, we don't have his name, he was a Roman priest, he predicted that Jesus would return, and he based this on the measurements of the ark, of, of Noah's ark, that is. 1000 A.D., that was the millennium. Just like Y2K, remember, the year 2000. There were those that believed it's going to bring the end of the world. They thought it then also. It gets better. In 1033 A.D., the prediction of 1,000 years after Jesus' death has to be the time of the end. His death, his resurrection, so now the end times. 1186 A.D., a famous letter from Toledo, Spain, warning uh, that the end of time was here, hide in the caves and in the mountains. This is amazing, these dates. 1420 A.D., the, the tabroids, of Czechoslovakia warned of death and destruction because of Jesus' soon return. <laughs> in 1666, listen to this. London, England, 100,000 die at the bubonic plague, and then this great fire in London. They blamed it in the last three sixes of the date. 1809 A.D., this is a good one. Mary Bateman, fortune teller. She had a magical chicken that laid eggs with messages. And obviously, one of the messages was the end times. In 1840, I guess somebody obviously ate her chicken. In 1814 AD, Joanna Southcott, a spiritist, predicted by the virgin birth that she would produce a second Jesus. Now, if you're taking notes, I encourage you to do a study of this. Pastor Jay did a great teaching years ago. I remember it. 1843 A.D. to 1844 A.D., the famous Millerite movement. This gentleman by the name of William Miller. He was an American Baptist in, in, in uh, Massachusetts, and then from there, he's the one that brought forth Adventism. Interesting. Here's our favorite. You know, the people that come to your home on Saturday mornings, the Jehovah's Witnesses have recorded of predictions. Listen how many times. 1874, 1878, 1881, 1910, 1914, 1918, 1925, 1941, 1975, 1984. Ten total. And the notes I was drawing from, they said, there's another one obviously going to be coming soon. And yet they continue to predict. Amazing. In 1910, 
A.D., Halley's Comet, so many said because of Halley's Comet, uh, the end of the world. 1967, I was just out of high school. Uh, Israel took back Jerusalem after 2,000 years of being scattered. And so the end of the world was coming at that time, predicted. 1973 A.D., the comet Kohotek was the signs of Jesus' return. 1982, the planets were lining up. The centrifugal force or the magnetic force was going to cause the rapture of the church and then the seven years of tribulation. Interesting. Two full-page ads were taken, and they gave the actual date, April 24th, April 25th. Obviously, it didn't happen. Some of you might remember this one. 1987, the Great Harmonic Conversion, and they gave actual dates of August 16, 17 of that year. And at the end of the world was here. 1988, some of you remember this one. Edgar Wisnott wrote a book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return, and he gave dates, September 11th through September the 13th. Obviously, that didn't happen. Then he had the audacity... In 1989, Weisnart wrote second book, Why Jesus Will Return Now, 1988. Obviously, he only sold a few copies. 1991, we're going to come to the conclusion, A.D. through 2004, there was all kinds of predictions. But here's something interesting. There's still future predictions already made of the end of the world from 2011 to 2060. Jesus says, no man knows the time or the hour. And you would think that these people would learn. You would think the Jehovah's Witnesses would give up on their predictions. Jesus said, no man knows the time nor the hour. Now let's go back to our text. Look at verse 2. For you yourselves know perfectly uh, that the day of the Lord so comes, and here's a good description, and we mentioned this last week, as a thief in the night. So in other words, Paul is writing, nobody knows the time of the rapture of the church. Nobody knows the time of the second coming of Christ. And so Paul says, Jesus will return like a thief in the night. And we mentioned this last week. A thief never warns you in his coming. He just does it. Let me give you some Old Testament passages you can do some homework on. Isaiah chapter 13, verses 9 through 11. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. And again, Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. These prophecies that I just read to you pertain to the soon coming judgment of the seven years of tribulation. How can we deny these things? Now in the New Testament, I'm just going to give you two. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 43 to 44, Luke chapter 12, verse 39 through 40, the key is Jesus' return unexpectedly. No one knows the time or the hour. He's going to come as a thief in the night. Yet we're going to describe here the signs of the times, church. Now we just read verses 13 through 18 of last week's chapter. And so Paul declares the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we who remain are going to meet them in the air with the Lord. And that's called the rapture or the great harpostle, the great catching away. And then there has to be this covenant. This league, this contract made by this man that we know as Antichrist. If you're taking notes, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, it says, 
the peace treaty or this covenant will be signed with many for one week. This one week declares the seven years of tribulation. In other words, it is going to come quick and hard. There's going to be seven sealed judgments. There's going to be seven trumpet judgments. There's going to be seven bold judgments that are going to operate from Revelation uh, chapter 6 to Revelation chapter 18. And so now listen to verse 3. For when they say, and I like what Paul does, when they say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. In other words, before the seven years of tribulation begin, this Antichrist will make a league, Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, a contract, this covenant with the world, and then peace and safety will be the key. Now, I've looked at this position of the Antichrist many times, and I have this belief system that he's going to come basically with three main answers because this is what the world's looking for even today. Number one, when this peace treaty is signed and sealed, he's going to bring the promises of political answers. And see, right now the world is looking for one political leader, somebody that will bring it all together, the United States of America, the United States of Europe. It's not going to be about Democrats and Republicans or independents, but he's going to have the answer. And I believe this is the Antichrist. Secondly, what is the biggest problem that's happening in our United States and across the world? The economic question. And he's going to bring it together. The euro dollar is already being expressed today. So number one, he is going to bring forth the political answers. Secondly, he's going to bring forth the economic answers. And here's the third one. If you look around us, this is so evident. He will have the religious answers. What is the big argument right now? Israel wants a temple so bad. They have all uh, of the furnishings. They have uh, all of the equipment. They have even training, uh, you know, Jewish young men for the priesthood, how to cut and fillet and how to roast and all the instruments. Everything's ready, but they don't have a temple. I mean, all the materials are there. And so can you imagine Antichrist comes together? Okay, Arabs, this is yours. Jews, this is yours. And everybody's going to be content. And so this is this league that he sets up. The Bible says they're even going to give gifts to each other. So the answers that he brings forth politically, economically, and religiously. And so here's these labor pangs of a woman in travail just already started, I believe. Soon the tribulation will come. This seven-year period spoken of by the prophet Daniel. And so Jesus gives us insight. Now look at verse 4. But you... Brothers and sisters, you, the church, you, the body of Christ, you, the true believer, you're not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief in the night. We don't know the time. We don't know the date. We don't have 88 reasons why Jesus will come in 1988. But we have the signs. All we have to do is look around. 
We're not ignorant. We're not stupid. God's given us a mind. And so Paul, through the Holy Spirit here in verse 4, addresses the Christian church. But you, brothers and sisters, he says, you're not in darkness. Those of obscurity of sin, that's the word darkness. And this translation or tribulation should not take you by surprise. In other words, it's ripe right now. A thief is not going to tell you when he's going to break in. In fact, we, when we least expect it. Now, Jesus spoke about the signs. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. And let me set this up. The Pharisees, the scribes, and Sadducees, uh, they were always trying to trip Jesus. Now, the Jewish mind always liked, show me a sign. Show me a sign. And yet I was thinking, when Lazarus came forth from the dead, after being dead for, what, was it three to four days? Shouldn't they have all come to saving grace? And so notice now, Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. Then the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they came, and here's the key. They were testing Jesus, always trying to entrap him. Testing him, they asked that uh, he would show them a sign from heaven. The Jews were good, always looking for a sign. He answered and he said to them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red. And threatening. And then listen to what he calls them, hypocrites. And the translation in the Greek, you actors, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. Now, I believe that the church, the body of Christ, true believers, see the signs of the times. We, we're not date setters, but we see the signs of the times. Pastor Chuck had encouraged us years ago in conferences. He says, fellas, take your Bible. He says, I love reading Old Testament. I love reading the New Testament. And take your prophetic scriptures. Open them up, read them, and then take out your newspapers. And just see how many, you know, how compatible it is so many times. And the Word of God obviously is true. Turn on the news, the nightly news, and see what they're saying. And just look, church, we're not ignorant of these things. And so Jesus concludes now with these religious leaders. Look at verse 4. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them, and he departed. Interesting, this prophet Jonah. How many times we hear, oh, it's just a fairy tale. Oh, come on, you really believe a great, huge fish swallowed up a man? He was in there for three days and then regurgitated him there uh, in the seashore at Nineveh. And then he said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And many came to saving grace. In fact, judgment stopped on Nineveh. And remember, Jonah sulked underneath the tree. <laughs> but Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days. And we know that he rose again. Jesus would be in the grave for three days, and he rose again. The signs of the times. And so the, these Jewish leaders, these Jewish religious leaders, they knew of the teaching of Jonah. 
It's amazing to me that they can read the accounts in Isaiah 53 and they can't see the suffering Savior. They can read Psalm 22 and they can't see the suffering Savior. But what about us? Before we came to Christ, the blinders were there and we didn't see them either. But Jesus left them a sign. Look at verse 4 again. But you, church, body of Christ, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should not overtake you as a thief. And so Jesus uses the weather patterns. You go outside and you see it a certain way. We do the same thing here. You go outside, you go, oh, I guess it's going to be a little windy today. We can see the overcast today. Oh, it's going to be hot. You already know it. And maybe some of your aunts or your uncles, they go, it's going to rain today. How do you know? My knee hurts. We've got people that predict all kinds of things. We understand these times and these signs, but what about what the Word of God has to say? Then he goes on into verse 5. You are all sons and daughters of the light. This light is Christ. And sons of the day. You are not of the night nor of the darkness. Now, in verse 4, we just read, we, the believer, does not live in darkness, but we are sons and daughters of the light. And we are sons and daughters of the day, he declares here in verse 5. Not of the night or of the darkness. Let me give you a few verses here so beautifully. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, Jesus says, or Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, For you were once in darkness, but now you are in the light, in the Lord. Walk, and this word walk speaks of your manner of life, as children of light. We're no longer in the darkness. God has brought us out of the darkness. Darkness was our B.C. days. And we've come to Christ now. Listen to these two verses. In the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 35 and 36, then Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. He was speaking of himself. He says, walk, and that's that manner of life again, while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Uh, the man who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. This is when we're lost. This is when sin has captivated our whole lives. But we've come to the light now. We've come to the born-again experience. Then he concludes in verse 36, Put your trust in the light, which is Christ, while you have it, so that you may become sons of the light. Our trust, our faith, our hope is not in this world, but it's in this light, which is Christ. You see, we were part of the darkness. We were part of that obscurity. We were part of that sin nature. And now he's brought us to the place of the light. We've come uh, to saving grace. And so Paul says, you are sons of light, sons of the day. In verse 4, uh, you brothers, sisters in Christ, you're not in darkness anymore. But you've come to the light. You've come to Christ. Look at verse 6 now. He continues. Therefore. Let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Other scriptures say be sober-minded. Let's not just sleep. Listen uh, to Matthew chapter 24, verse 42. Jesus says, watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. In other words, watch, be awake, be alert. Have that watchfulness. It shouldn't overtake us as a thief in the night, but we know as we see the signs of the time. And here's Paul. 
Here's the church at Thessalonica anticipating the coming of the Lord in their time. Here we are 1950 plus years later, as we mentioned so many times. What about us? That's always been the hope of the church. In Luke chapter 21, verse 28, Jesus says, when these things begin to happen, these signs, he says, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. Are the signs of the times here, Pastor Bob? Yes. Interesting, since we've turned uh, to the year 2000. Here we are eight years into it. We're in this 21st century. Look at the things that we've seen. How quickly we have forgot about 9-11 that took place in New York. The two twin towers coming down. How quickly there in New Orleans we've forgotten about Katrina. How quickly we've forgotten about the tsunamis and uh, the South Pacific Rim. And now we're very fresh with this great earthquake in China and, and this cyclone in Burma. But why is it that we forget so quickly? The signs of the times are here. Amazing. It's almost like it's natural for what's going on in Kansas and Oklahoma. We're hearing about tornadoes constantly. In fact, I talked to my mom on Friday, and they were having 100-degree weather the week before in Southern California. Then all of a sudden on Friday they were having, you know, uh, there was river in Riverside, California, about 50 miles from my mom, I guess, maybe 40 miles Tornadoes, unheard of. Just up here in Albuquerque, they were having monsoon weather. I mean, the signs of the times. We discern the weather patterns. What about everything else that's taking place? It should not catch us by surprise. Because we're all sons, we're all daughters of the light. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us be watchful and sober-minded considering the times. Now notice verse 7. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. Now this is so beautiful how Paul just simply puts it together. We should not allow the signs of the times to take us down. Oh, if all of this is happening and what Pastor Bob just said and what we just read, oh, yeah, I forgot about 9-11. Oh, we forgot about what happened in New Orleans. And then all of a sudden it starts to freak you out. We should not allow the signs of the times to take us down. When the Christian sleeps, listen, he should sleep, she should sleep at the night and not toss and turn and worry. And sometimes we go to bed, oh, what's going to happen? Oh, what about this? Oh, what about that? What do we do in case of earthquake? tell you what get your bible pray ask the lord to comfort our hearts but then he says but those who are not saved they kill the pain of the signs in the times to get drunk to do the drugs to get involved sexually outside of marriage some seek more education and there's nothing wrong with education but they do it if i just get more money i'm going to be happy i'm going to be sustained i can buy this i can buy that something bigger something smaller i don't know I need this to be happy, to be content, whatever it takes to make me happy, even if it means sin. The Bible teaches us to be content. We see the signs of the times. So we worry, we just get drunk. We worry, so let's take some drugs. We worry, and you know, the list goes on. 
we have to trust the Lord, right? Listen to how Paul continues, verse 8 now. But let us who are of the day be sober. And then I love this. He says, putting on the breastplate of faith, the breastplate of faith and love, and the helmet of hope of salvation. Paul is saying here, when the Christian is awake, it's the time to be sober. Listen, watchfulness, not in drunkenness. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I believe and teach the scriptures don't say you can't drink. There's not a problem if you want to have, I believe, a glass of wine or a glass of beer. But what's it going to add to? If you're an alcoholic, you have no purpose, no reason. But it says not to be drunk, but to be filled with the Spirit. But be careful with those that say, well, Timothy was told by Paul, take a little wine for your stomach, say, and, and you know, you get a gallon of wine. That's not what he's saying. We use wisdom, church. And so, again, Ephesians 5.18, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he talks about this breastplate of faith. Now, Paul loved the Roman soldier. We go back to Ephesians chapter 6, and he speaks about the Roman soldier, and he says, put on the full armor of God. And so now Paul says here in verse 8, put on the garment of faith. The breastplate of faith. Now this breastplate is what covered the vital portions of the chest. And mainly, what I believe Paul is speaking is to guard the heart especially. Cover the heart. Listen, the word faith, cover the heart with faith, trust, assurance. Cover the heart with love, which is agapeo love. This is Christ. And God sustains us so beautifully. And then he uses this helmet. Why do we use the helmet? But to cover the head. Now he's speaking here spiritually. Cover the helmet. Uh, cover that mind with faith that you are saved. One of the things that the enemy loves to do is he likes to break that assurance. Listen, Pastor Bob, you're not saved. Now, I've seen what you've done. God sees what you've done. And so he begins to challenge you. You're not even a Christian. You call yourself a pastor. The same thing with you. I saw what you did. God saw what you did. He's through with you. The Bible says that I'm saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest the man should boast. If, if my works are going to save me, that's where I'm going to get tripped up. And the Bible says to resist the devil, the devil that is, and he will flee. And so we stand firm. Michael the archangel did not bring a railing accusation against Satan, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. And so what a beautiful picture. Now look at verse 8 again. But let us who are of the day. He said earlier, those that are of the light, those that are not of the darkness, let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of hope of salvation. My hope is in Christ, not in this world's standards. I might know the signs of the times, but it doesn't frustrate. It shows me that the Lord is coming soon and the Lord will 
return soon. And so we studied last week, there has to be uh, this rapture of the church, the dead in Christ first, and we who remain alive, Paul says. And now he says, and then the seven years of tribulation. Now look at verse 9. For God did not appoint to us, the church, he says, to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want you to understand this. The true church the true believer, the true Christian, is not appointed unto wrath. The word wrath here, I believe, speaks of the seven years of tribulation. We're not appointed unto judgment. We're not appointed unto indignation. We're not appointed unto punishment. But I believe strongly that the church will not go through the seven years of tribulation. But we speak about Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7. It's called Jacob's trouble. It's to woo back the nation of Israel. But God has appointed us unto salvation we speak about predestination we speak about election we speak about being chosen we speak about being appointed and i believe and i teach that so then others will respond to does god appoint some to heaven and some to hell no the Bible says, for God is not willing that any should perish, but come to saving grace. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But God has given us choice. The church, I believe, is not appointed unto wrath. Now, please don't leave here thinking nothing is supposed to happen to me. The church suffers. The church goes through trials, tribulations, but not the seven years of tribulation. There are those in the body of Christ. We know in this church, family members that have died of cancer. This famous singer just recently, Chapman, his son backing up the vehicle or going forward, I don't know which way, runs over uh, another sibling. Here's a man that goes all over the country singing about Jesus, ministering about Christ, and his child is killed by one of his own children. A freak accident happens all the time. But Lord, why this man? He's serving you. The Bible says that it rains on the just and on the unjust. Some of you have gone through trials. Some of you will go through great trials. But that's not the seven years of tribulation. The church is not appointed unto wrath. And so a lot, well, Pastor Bob, you, then you got carte blanche. Carte blanche you're, you're not going to suffer at all. No, it doesn't mean we don't suffer. But the judgments that are coming, the seven seals, the seven tr trumpet, and the seven bold judgments, this is for the non-believing world. And it's Jacob's trouble to bring the nation of Israel to their knees. Many will die. Many will die. There'll be a remnant of Jews that God is going to store there in the rock city Petra. But God did not appoint us, Paul speaking about the church, to wrath, but to obtain salvation. Look at verse 10. He speaks about Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Now, one of my commentaries paraphrased this so beautifully. Speaking of Christ, he died for us in our behalf that we have no doubt of our salvation since he paid the full price 
for us at the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago. Whether we wake or sleep, watch this, whether we be found at Christ's coming alive or in our graves, serve him diligently. I love this. Live together with him. Rather, all of us together should live with him. The living live for Christ daily. If dead, we will look at glorification at his soon coming. Listen to this verse now. Romans chapter 14, verse 8. I love what Paul says here. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. I love that. Didn't Paul say to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord? Now, that doesn't give us carte blanche to go out and to the 25 and say, well, I'm going to find an 18-wheeler coming. I'm Christian. Let him knock me out. No. Man, we're to stay busy for the Lord. Paul struggled with this. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, he was caught in between to stay and be with the church at Philippi or to go home to be with the Lord. And listen to what he says in verse 21. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. I love that. For me to live right now, it's Christ. And to die is gain. You know that Paul met with Nero. Many scholars believe that Nero listened uh, to Paul. And then Paul had a second meeting with him. Something happened to Nero. There are those that say that Nero possibly became demon-possessed because he had Paul killed. We don't know. But I believe that the Holy Spirit was pre preparing Paul. And we know that his head was cut off. And he says here, For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. The word gain is to profit. God is so good, church. <laughs> Verse 10 again, speaking of Christ who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. God's in control. God's in charge. If I'm alive and planet earth, you know, serve the Lord with all diligence. If he takes me home, he takes me home. Then Paul concludes it this morning. Verse 11, therefore, and just like he said at the conclusion of the rapture of the church, and now he's been speaking about the day of the Lord, the seven years of tribulation, he's given the whole explanation. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. The church at Thessalonica was already doing it. The church at Thessalonica was an on-fire church, a young church, a vibrant church. Uh, Paul tells us that, uh, that they were possibly about three weeks in the Lord. Uh, could have been a little older, but they were a young church. And they love the Lord. Remember they said that uh, the churches in Macedonia <laughs> were stunned by their witness, their testimony, their love, their grace. Therefore, comfort each other. The word to comfort there, encourage one another. The word to edify one another is to build up the body of Christ. And then Paul says, continue as you are. Continue as you are. So as we come to the conclusion, we shared last week the rapture of the church. And now this week, Paul speaks about this day of the Lord, this time of the seven years of tribulation. Nobody knows the time or the hour. We read all those statistics, everybody giving their dates. 
But the Bible says that we see the signs of the time. Jesus says, you go outside and you see uh, how the weather looks and you can discern. It's going to be a good day today. No, it's going to be a little windy. No, it's going to be a little stormy. But we can't discern the signs of the times. Look around this church. Look up for our redemption draws near. And I'm not concerned for myself. I'm concerned for my family, my friends, my loved ones, co-workers, those that don't know Christ. It's going to take place in their life like a thief in the night. But for us, we're not left to be ignorant. And so Paul has given us so much insight. And what's amazing to me, Paul, the church of Thessalonica, Peter, James, John, all of the New Testament saints, they believed it in their time. And here we are, 1950 plus years later, 2,000 years now since Christ's death. We still anticipate the rapture of the church and then this league that will be signed uh, with Antichrist. In the seven years of tribulation. Man, we have such great hope. Our hope is in Christ. Let's all stand and we'll end with a word of prayer. Father, thank you, Lord, for your goodness, your grace, your love, and your mercy. Thank you, Lord, for your word, your word that will not come back void. And Lord, thank you for the message of hope. And Lord, remind us that we're not the church, the body of Christ is not appointed unto wrath. That doesn't mean we're not going to suffer. We see suffering in third world countries even now. That doesn't mean we're not going to go through trials and tribulations. We see trials now. Doesn't mean that the church will not go through hardship and pain. The church has always suffered. But this appointment to wrath, this time of Jacob's trouble, it's for the nation of Israel and for the Gentiles that did not uh, make it in the rapture of the church. Oh, there'll be tribulation saints during the time of the seven years of tribulation. But Father, speak to our hearts. Maybe there's somebody here that still hasn't given their life to Christ. I can't force them into the kingdom of God. But Lord, let your spirit to speak to them. And so, Father, bless each and every one that's here. Bless those that would be listening to the study later. And it's in Jesus' name we pray all these things.